Last time that I spoke, it was on heaven, and I emphasized how important it is in life and in everything we do that we start with the end in mind. And along those same lines today, I want to talk about the, the big picture of the Bible. What is, what is the story of the Bible, and how do our lives fit into it? And I think it's so crucial that we understand the big picture. A lot of people don't understand how does my life fit into the story of what God is doing. And so we're going to look at that today. And I want to start by looking at what the storyline of the Bible. And I propose it's the story of how God brings glory to the Godhead by revealing his character and by bringing people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and place into an intimate, transforming relationship with him. I know that's a little long. I've been working on that statement for about 25 years, and it's a little different than what's in your program because I changed it again last night. Um, uh, but I believe this captures what the Bible's all about. If we had to do it in a few words, it's the story of how God brings glory to himself. That's the story of the Bible, how God brings glory to himself. We look at Isaiah 43 here. It says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He created each of us for his glory. That's what the Bible is all about. Also in Corinthians it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay, whatever we do, we're told what, our lives are to be lived for God's glory. This was confirmed uh, in the 17th century. Key Protestant leaders got together and uh, came up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They said the chief end or the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Then recently, John Piper changed this just slightly by saying the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And many think, oh, that's just a little teeny change, but that's very significant, that the way we glorify God is by enjoying him. And we are to enjoy God. This, this life is not just to be a grind. It's a life to enjoy with God through the ups and the downs. There, there are difficulties, but God promises he'll never leave us. Piper goes on to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Again, this idea is focused on God's glory. And that our lives, when we're satisfied in him, it really brings God glory. Then in Mark 12, the, the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments. But if we look at this. When we're loving God, does that bring glory to him? Absolutely. Yeah, it shows that he's worthy. When we love our neighbor and through Christ's strength, and we have this desire to, because God first loved us, we want to love others. As Christians, when we uh, do good deeds, help others, love them, does that bring glory to God? When Christians, his children, bless others? Absolutely. So the greatest command also um, reiterates this truth, that it's all about God's glory. Okay, so many people say, oh, if God wants to glorify himself, is he selfish? 
Absolutely not. Now, it does, that's a good question, though, isn't it? Do we serve a selfish God? Did, God needed to create us so that he would get glory. Everything that he does is for his glory. Isn't that selfish? We serve a selfish God? No, we don't. And I think this is really important. And that's why in my statement we talked about God, the, uh, that God brings glory to himself, to the Godhead, is key in this. And we want to look at this. In, in Revelation 7, 9 to 12, this is how it's going to end. We know we're going to have victory. Our lives have lots of ups and downs. History has lots of ups and downs. But in the end, this is what happens. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's pretty exciting, but it's even going to be more exciting when we're there. As believers, we're going to be there one day with this incredible multitude worshiping God and giving him. And the focus here around the throne before the Lamb. So all this glory is going to the Lamb of God who was slain, to Jesus. Now, now catch this, this next verse. We go back to Corinthians and listen to what it, it says happens then. Then comes the end. So that's the end. He delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign... Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's, he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, then Jesus will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The NIV, NIV says a little different. It says, then the Son will turn over all things to the Father. So it's this idea that all things are brought under Jesus' feet. He is preeminent over everything, and he even crushes death. And then, like we flash back to this picture, everyone from every nation, tongue, and tribe is worshiping Jesus. And what does he do? He then takes it and turns it all over back to the Father. So God has gone to extraordinary lengths to send Jesus to earth so that he would be glorified and worshipped by all peoples. And when Jesus gets all that glory from all these people throughout eternity, from every nation, tongue, and tribe, more glory than we can ever imagine, the maximum glory, because it's so diverse from every nation, tongue, and tribe throughout history, he gets all that glory and then what does he do with it? He turns things back over to the Father. So here we see Jesus and God trying to outdo one another in giving each other glory. So is God selfish, self-centered? No, from the beginning, the Godhead, God the Father is trying to glorify Jesus. 
Then Jesus gets the glory and he turns it over. He wants to glorify the Father. And the whole time the Holy Spirit's working to see them glorified. So God is not a selfish God. In fact, this is one of the beauties of the Trinity. Perhaps you could argue a God that has no Trinity is selfish. He doesn't have this innate uh, example of, of serving others. But here, the triune God is constantly seeking to glorify the other members of the Trinity. So no, God isn't selfish. Okay, these all pop up. Supposed to pop up one at a time. But okay, so if this is true, if this really is the story of the Bible, then we should see it throughout the whole Bible, right? I think a lot of people see it at the end of Jesus' life, right before going to heaven. He says, "Go and make disciples of all nations." But if this is really the story of the Bible, it should be from beginning to end. And I'm going to look today, we're just going to focus on the Old Testament. In the next 40 minutes, we're going to cover the entire Old Testament. All right, so we're going to go fast, so stay alert. I'll, I'm going to have you do some hand motions and things to keep you alert. Make sure you don't fall asleep. Um, but I want you, even as you learn this, we'll post it on the website because I think it's an excellent tool for helping your children understand the Old Testament. Most people have a much better understanding of the New Testament than the Old. So I, I found this exercise very helpful. Okay? But it's a great tool. I use it to teach my kids. And then we hang from these major events, all the other events of the New Testament. We can, if we're reading a passage, we can place that passage using this. Oh, that's where it belongs in the Old Testament. Oh, I, I get it. So I think it'll be very helpful for you in opening up your interest and understanding of the Old Testament. But we're going to look at these major events, and we're going to see God's heart and concern for his glory among the nations in all of them. If I do my job right here, I want to prove that. I hope you'll, you'll see it. Okay, so the first major event is creation. Okay, go like this. Creation. All right. Fall. Flood. Now, when you do flood, you've got to move your fingers like water up to you about your mouth. Okay? So, again, creation. Say it with me. Fall, Fall. flood, Flood. Babel, Babel. (laughs) nations, Abrahamic covenant. Okay, let's look at these. Creation. The first command that God gave Adam and Eve, what was it? It was in Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them. Interesting here, listen. What does he do first? He blesses them. And listen for this pattern as we go through this. Seem like whenever God gives somebody a responsibility, he starts by blessing them. He knows that they need a blessing. They need the power to do it. Isn't it horrible when someone gives you an assignment you don't have the strength or ability to do? God never does that. He blesses them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I know growing up, I heard that passage a few times, but the pastor, his application was always, so parents, it's, it's good to have children. Multiply, you know. I thought, oh, okay. But pay attention to this, it's going to come up again. He says, multiply and fill the earth. I think what we really see here is God, from the beginning, from eternity, has wanted the earth to be filled 
with people that are in relationship with him. Adam and Eve at this point are in perfect relationship with God. He tells them, multiply, fill the earth. I want every part of the globe filled with people in relationship with me. That delights me. That will bring me glory. Okay? So that's creation. Then, the fall. Genesis chapter 3. This is a really interesting passage. This is after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, and God brings the consequences, the result of their sin. Okay, he said, and this is, he says, what the consequence for Satan is going to be. God says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this he? Anybody? Who is that? Okay, now this is Genesis chapter 3. So who would this he be? No, you're right. It's Jesus. Yes. Yeah, even right here. Third chapter of the Bible. As soon as man turns away from God, what does God immediately begin talking about? A redeemer that's going to bring them back, break the power of death and sin. And how do we know this is Jesus? Well, one of the things, in the NIV it has a little footnote next to between your offspring. In fact, it says uses the word seed. All other places in Genesis where it's talking about offspring of the woman, it uses the word seeds. But this one place in Genesis 3.15, it says, between your seed, speaking of the woman's seed, singular. Yeah, that's why Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus had a virgin birth. It was of the woman's seed, not seeds. So it was picked up from the very beginning. And it's this idea that Satan will, uh, he, and then in the NIV it talks about he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. So this idea that Jesus on the cross crushes Satan and the power of death, even though he's wounded, his, his heel is struck. So immediately when man turns from God, God starts talking about a redeemer that's going to come. That's God's nature. He wants to bring man back to himself. All right, then the flood. And let's review this again with me. All right, you do the hand. I'll say the word, you do the hand motions. Creation. Okay, fall. Flood. Babel. Nations. Okay, Abrahamic covenant. Okay, very good. Now, in the flood, okay, and, and here, listen what Genesis 6 says. This is one of the most emotional passages in the Bible. When we see God's heart, some people think of God, they say, oh, he's, just, he's an uncaring, distant, aloof God. Wow, they haven't been reading their Bible. Verse 5 of chapter 6 of Genesis, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Hey, wow, you hear that? How disappointed he was as man became more and more evil. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Oh, I love that verse. Noah walked with God. That's where we get our, our phrase, hey, how's your walk going? How's the walk with the Lord? This idea that everywhere we go, we bring God with us. And hopefully the places God's going, we're there with him. We're walking intimately with him. That's what God wants of us, just to walk with him. So he says that. So, and many people say, wow, God's judgment is so severe here. He wipes out, the, blots out mankind. Well, no, yes, there is deserved punishment here because of the evil. But God also is acting in his mercy here. He's revealing his character of mercy. He finds one righteous man, and he basically wipes out everybody else so he can start over with the idea that that one righteous man would multiply and there would be righteousness on earth. There would be millions of people walking with God because that gives pleasure to God. And if we look over then at chapter 9, verse 1, after Noah gets off the ark, listen to what God says to him. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have you heard that before? Same thing. He wants, again, Noah and his family are, the, are in a great relationship with God. And God tells them, multiply that. Fill the earth with that. I want the earth, every place, filled with people in relationship with me. Then, Babel, how interesting. In Genesis 11, God tells them to fill the earth, but they go to Babel, and what does man do? The absolute opposite. They, stay, they say, let's stay here. Let's build this tower and make a name for ourselves. Man does absolutely the opposite of what God tells him. And so God comes and confuses their language so that that forces them to disperse, to, to move out. Now, here we don't see uh, much, because it's interesting, the few, few places in the Old Testament that we don't see the nations being blessed or God's heart for the nations is when uh, man disobeys God. And here, they do the opposite of it, so we don't see the nations getting blessed. But mankind scatters. Now, some people say, um, oh, so, and actually I've had this thought when I was studying in China, language. I thought, oh, language is a curse from God. He brought this curse on him, and I'm paying for it now. No wonder it's, I'm so miserable trying to learn this. No, languages, the languages of the world would have happened anyways. In Guangxi, where we live. Uh, it's a small area. The western part of Guangxi and Yunnan province have over 400 different people groups. Why is that? Well, if you looked at the geography, you'd know there's lots of mountains. And over time, when people settled there, they weren't able to travel back and forth. And so where there was one language, lack of connection with this other group, a new language developed, a new dialect. And we have that in the Zhuang. There's 16 large dialects where they are mutually unintelligible. There's similarities but over time, they develop. So it would have happened anyway. So language isn't a curse. It would have resulted, had man obeyed God and filled the earth, these languages would have come about nonetheless. But it's interesting also that one of the reasons he, he confused their language, if you see there, it says, um, Behold, they are one people and they have 
all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God saw that having one language would enable them to do far more evil, so he thwarted and slowed down the spread of evil by creating all these languages. Again, it was an act of his mercy. The next major event is the nations. And it's interesting, you'll see we're going, we're going to go from Genesis 11 to 10, but actually it's still chronological. This was a literary device used where in chapter 10 we have the, the descendants of Noah. And the ESV says the chapter title is Nations Descended from Noah. So after Babel, these are the 70 nations that were created out of it. Then that brings us to the next major event, which is the Abrahamic Covenant. Okay, so let's review those again. Creation, fall, flood, Babel, nations, Abrahamic Covenant. Abrahamic Covenant is Genesis chapter 12, where he tells, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he says, I'm going to bless you and I will um, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see God loved all the nations, but he picks one man and tells him he's going to bless him for what purpose? So that all the nations can receive blessing. Now, in the, there was a near-term fulfillment of this, of Abraham, and we see how the nations around him were blessed as they blessed him and accepted him and his God, uh, the Lord. The ultimate fulfillment is through Christ, the descendant of, of Abraham. And through Christ, we know that all nations are blessed. So again... God's heart is to, to, to bless all the nations, but through Abraham and through what they become the people of Israel. They're the trumpet God uses to declare his message to the nations, or that's how he hopes to use them. Okay, then after this, we go to the ten plagues in the Passover. Now, there's some history between this. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In Genesis, the, this command, or the blessing that God says, I'm going to bless you and all nations will be blessed through you. He repeats that to Isaac and then again to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. His 11th is Joseph, who gets sold into slavery, goes to Egypt. Then his family comes down to avoid um, the, the um, famine that's happening. And then they grow into a great nation in Egypt. But then the pharaohs begin to treat them poorly. And so God raises up Moses to deliver them. And we see in Exodus chapter 9, God speaking of why he has allowed this to happen. And this is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. And he says this, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God uses, he says, I'm going to use the ten plagues in this whole situation so that you may see my power and my name will be known in all the earth. Not just among my people, the Israelites, but they're my mouthpiece. And through them I want to declare to all the nations. Well, did this happen? We know 
Uh, what's in, an interesting thing here, too, is of the ten plagues, archaeologists have found that all ten of them correspond with one of the gods of the Egyptians. Uh, the, the, there was darkness. The sun was blotted out. The sun was worshipped as a god. They found amulets even of gnats. The, there was the attack of the gnats. The gnat was worshipped as a god for protection. Okay? It's Pharaoh's firstborn son in the Passover. All the firstborn sons and animals died. Pharaoh's son was worshipped as God. So all of those. The Nile River also worshipped as God. So God was not just showing, was not just punishing them and showing his power. He was showing his superiority to all of their gods. And what was the result? Did God get any glory from it? Did the nations hear anything about it? Listen to what Exodus 12.37 says about their departure. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So it says the people of Israel, 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And then a mixed multitude. Who was this mixed multitude? Was it Israelites? No, that was in addition to the Israelites. So it must have been Egyptians or traders that were there. Uh, Egypt was the greatest nation on the face of the earth at that time. So there would have been many merchants there who would have seen God devastate the Egyptians while the Israelites were unfaced. They would have seen it, how amazing the God of the Israelites was. And that they went and they followed after God. In fact, it said when they were leaving... Many of the Egyptians were giving them their gold to leave. But apparently some of them, God knew their heart was so hard that it took the losing of their firstborn son before they finally would acknowledge, whoa, he is the one true God. We must follow him. So many, I think, followed in in tears, knowing that because of their stubbornness of their heart, God had to go to great lengths to get them to that point. Then... They crossed through the Red Sea miraculously, and it closed. And for this, the next one we say, so Abrahamic covenant, the ten plagues and the Passover. Okay, this is Passover representing the door, the blood on the door. So ten plagues and the Passover, then crossing the Red Sea. Okay, do that with me. It slammed shut because it slammed on Pharaoh and his army. Okay, and then from here, your hands go to Mount Sinai. And the law. Okay, those are our next event. And from the law, we go to the 12 spies and the wilderness wandering. All right, let's start with Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the 10 plagues and the Passover. Crossing the Red Sea. Mount Sinai. The law. The 12 spies and the wilderness wanderings. Okay, so through the Red Sea. Again, are you doing great? All right, in Joshua 2, chapter, verse 8, listen to what it says. You know, they didn't have internet back then, but God said that the nations would hear about these things. And sure enough, when they sent spies in to check out Jericho, they met uh, the prostitute, and she uh, hid the men. And uh, it says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. So they heard about these things, and she believed. And she was spared because of it. So again, just as God predicted would happen, that his name would be proclaimed in the earth, it was, even without the internet somehow. Okay, then that brought us to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And as far as the purpose of the law, yes, it was to help them be a separate people. But listen to what else in Genesis, Deuteronomy 4, just before giving of the Ten Commandments. God says this through Moses. Moses, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So them observing the law was for the sake of the nations around them who would see it and say, wow, what an incredible society you have. What incredible laws and what an incredible God who gave them to you. Wow. That was to be part of the purpose of the law as well. And we, we can't go through the law without looking at Leviticus 19, especially in this day with all the debate about what should we do with refugees and foreigners coming in, immigrants coming in. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, Leviticus 19.33, one of the commandments is, When a stranger or foreigner sojourns with you in the Lord, in the land, you shall not do to him wrong, you shall treat the stranger or foreigner who sojourns with you as a native born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I love how he ends it. It's God saying, I am the Lord your God. This is part of my character. This is who I am. I care for the foreigner, the stranger, the one who's just come into the country. He says, you shall love them as one of your native born. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's almost as if God is saying here, I allowed you to be slaves in Egypt for a purpose. So that you would be more compassionate in the future when foreigners came into your land. Because you've experienced how pathetic and how difficult it can be when you're not welcomed, when you're not loved. It seems like God's saying, I allowed that to happen so you in the future, would be more compassionate to the stranger, to the foreigner in your country. Then after this, they sent out 12 spies to check out the promised land, but they came back. Two had a good report. Ten didn't. The people sided with those that said, no, we shouldn't go take it. And God was grieved at their lack of faith. Though he had told them he would give them that land, they, they couldn't believe God would do it. So God allowed that generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died, all those who hadn't had faith, till they passed away. And then he allowed Joshua to take them into the promised land. 
So do we expect to see a lot of blessing for the nations here? No. God, when God's people are disappointed, are um, disobedient, uh, that's often we see little impact on, on the nations, with some exceptions, thankfully. So after the 12 spies, it's the taking of the promised land. And Ezekiel 5, verse 5 says, This is Jerusalem, which I, God, have set in the center of the nations. Did God just randomly choose the promised land? No. He calculated very carefully. And he set Jerusalem right here in the center of the nations. Okay, the Fertile Crescent is this green area. This is desert. The Sinai Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, this is desert land. So anyone, this is Europe up here. Anyone going from Europe down to Africa would go right through here. The travel route was right through here. It wasn't out here. You'd die out here. You're going to come from Asia to Africa. Um, perhaps even Asia to Europe would pass through here. These were the trades route. So God set them for a purpose there. That, and we see during the time of David and the, the first part of Solomon's life, in the glory years of Israel, when uh, people from all over the world came to see the temple and see the incredible society they had, they would see it and they would say, wow, this is amazing. It was to be a light that would draw the, the Gentile nations in. So God placed them there for a purpose. Then there was the period of the judges. In Judges, the last verse in Judges says, everyone did as he saw fit. Or I think the ESV says, everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Not in God's eyes. They basically did their own thing. It's a period of a lot of disobedience. Um, and, and so we don't see much concern, blessing upon the nations, with one exception. In the midst of all that disobedience, God still uh, allows Ruth, to a, a Moabite, a Gentile, to come to faith. That story, as you know, in the book of Ruth, Naomi uh, leaves with her two sons uh, because of a famine and goes up to Moabite, a Gentile nation. There the sons marry Moabite women, but then the sons die. After a while, things are better with the famine, so Naomi's going to go back to Israel. Uh, but her daughter, Ruth, says, I'll go with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She ends up marrying Boaz. And in Matthew chapter 1, Boaz and Ruth are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So in the genealogy of Jesus, there's a Moabite woman. God made sure that his testimony of his goodness got out even during Israel's disobedience. Okay, so let's go from the beginning. Creation, fall, flood, Babel, say it with me, Babel, nations, Abrahamic covenant, ten plagues in the Passover, crossing the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, giving of the law, the twelve spies and the wilderness wanderings. Okay, and then Entering the promised land. Now, we don't slam it shut, but they crossed through the Jordan River and it closed. This time it didn't wipe anybody out. Okay. Entering the, or taking the promised land. And then I go like this, just showing that they settled in the promised land. All right. Then the period of the judges. Then the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom had three kings. Saul, first, who had no heart for God. David, who had a whole heart for God. 
And Solomon, who had half a heart for God, the first half of his life, he faithfully served God. So in that, we would expect to see with David, he was called a man after God's own heart. The things that were on God's heart were on his heart. In 1 Samuel 17, you know, we, we teach in Sunday school all the time where he faces Goliath. And we say, oh, and God will defeat the giants in your lives too. But if we look, took time to look at this verse, it says, what was the reason David fought Goliath? Well, he told Goliath, he said, today you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the God of the Israelites. And today I'll kill you and give your carcass to the birds of the air so that the whole world knows that there's a God in Israel. David fought Goliath for the sake of God's glory. That's what was on David's heart, God's glory, because he was a man after God's own heart. What about you? Are you a man? Are you a woman after God's own heart? Are the things that are on God's heart on your heart? That's what made David so special, was that the things on God's heart were on his We see this especially a number of places. Uh, We'll just look at a few. Psalm 67 is often attributed to David. It's called the missionary psalm. Listen to what he says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. I knew that verse really well. When I grew up at our Presbyterian church, every service ended with the pastor raising his hands and saying, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now go in peace. But you know, after reading the rest of it, I realized, man, if David was in the audience, I think he would have stood up and said, hey, wait a minute. That's not where I ended it. Yeah, that's the blessing part, but there's, some, there's more to it. He says, may God be gracious and bless us, make his face shine upon us, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Okay, so he asked God, To bless them so that his ways would be made known among all the nations, among all the peoples, all the ethnic groups. That was on David's heart. He passed it on to Solomon. Solomon had that same heart. What was the one thing that David wasn't allowed to do but that Solomon did for him? Build the temple. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, listen, and you can hear that same heart that his father had in the son. In that regard, he, he was a chip off the old block. He had God's heart for the nation. So when they're dedicating the temple, Solomon is praying this prayer in 1 Kings 8. And in verse 41, he says, Likewise, God, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So he says, God, answer the foreigner's prayer when they come, because they're going to hear about you. Sure enough, they did. 
when they come because they've heard about you and they pray, answer their prayer so that all the nations will know you and follow you. So Solomon had that same heart. During his reign, people, it says Queen Sheba came from, we know it was Ethiopia, and took uh, Ethiopians, traced their Christianity back to Queen Sheba, even to this day. Uh, she came and heard Solomon and saw the glory of Israel and believed and followed God. So this was the united kingdom, okay? The next part is the divided kingdom, okay? And this is more a learning aid, okay? There's the north and the south. Israel was in the north. Judah was the nation, sorry, in the south, okay? Samaria was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Those, it's very helpful to know that as you read the Old Testament. It'll make sense of a lot of passages. There were 19 kings in Israel. There were 20 kings in Judah. None of Israel's kings were good. Eight of Judah's kings were good. So after that, then, the Assyrians came and attacked. Who do you think they attacked? The north that had zero good kings or the south who had eight good kings? The north. Judgment came first to the north with the Assyrians. They took away the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians came and took both the north and the south. Okay, and then we have Cyrus, who allows the return. So we say A, Assyrian exile, B, Babylonian captivity, C, Cyrus allows the return, A, B, C. And then we end the Old Testament. This is just a little bonus. The, I don't know why we end it with uh, Buddhism, but Zen, Z-E-N. <laughs> Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra reformed the people, and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. All right, so let's try starting with the unified, uh, United Kingdom. Sorry, one, two, three. United Kingdom. Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half a heart. Divided Kingdom. A, Assyrian exile. B, Babylonian captivity. C, Cyrus and the return. Zen, Zerubbabel, temple. Ezra, people. Nehemiah, walls. Okay, that's the whole Old Testament there. All right, so, and let's do the divided kingdom. So we go, I'm sorry, I missed that part. Divided kingdom, north, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, 0, 8. Okay? Did I do it right? Oh, I missed the capitals. All right, let's do it together. <laughs> Divided kingdom, north, south, Israel, Judah, Samaria, Jerusalem, 19, 20, 0, 8. A, Assyrian exile. B, Babylonian captivity. C, Cyrus and the return. Zen, Zerubbabel and the temple. Ezra reformed the people. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Then very quickly, even in the divided kingdom, uh, we see during this time of disobedience, still God, he, hit a, the, he, he sent Elijah to the widow, raised her son from the dead. He arranged for uh, Naaman the Syrian, the, a Gentile again, to go to Elisha and be healed. Later, Jesus spoke about this in the New Testament said, when he was in his hometown, he saw their lack of faith, and he, he extolled the Gentiles' faith. He said, you know, even during the time of Elijah, there were many widows, but he went to the Gentile widow. 
in the time of Elisha, there were many lepers, but he went to the Gentile leper, Naaman. So Jesus here was extolling the faith of the Gentiles, and it made his hometown people so mad they took him out to kill him. Okay? So all throughout we see God's heart for these nations, even when Israel's not doing its job and they're disobedient. And then he brings the judgment, but even during the judgment, the prophets during the Assyrian exile, Isaiah came and said, too small a thing just to save my people Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, speaking of the Messiah. Then in Daniel, and you can look these up at home, um, but we see with Nebuchadnezzar, he, in Daniel 2, he has a dream, and Daniel uh, is the only one that can interpret the dream, and so he's promoted to the highest level positions in the kingdom. Then another, Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, makes another decree in Daniel chapter 3. This is where he has the gold uh, idol, and everyone must worship it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. They're thrown in the fiery furnace. And then uh, there's a fourth person, okay, that, that an angel of God or perhaps uh, Jesus uh, rescues them. And the king is so amazed by that that this is worth reading in Daniel chapter 3 what he does because of this. Okay, when he realizes, sees this miracle, he says, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. He's so amazed by what happens. He sends out to all the people groups in his kingdom that message. And then with King Darius... The, the rulers uh, make a rule that everyone has to pray three times a day to Darius. Okay, but they do it to catch Daniel not doing it. So Daniel's thrown in the lion's den, but the, the king has already become aware of his faith, and the king runs uh, the next day. At the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So he was taken up. And the king commanded that those who had maliciously accused Daniel were cast into the den of lions. Then it says, listen to this. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to and his dominion shall be to the end. So he declares that message to all the peoples. So we see this, and then the last case in the uh, so that happens during the Babylonian captivity. The final event, the return to Egypt. I'm sorry, the return back to Israel. Esther doesn't return. She stays in. Um, what's now known as probably Iraq or Iran uh, in Ur, wasn't it? Um, and so the story is a little different than Veggie Tales tale, tells it. 
Um, their law is made where one day people can attack the Jews wherever they are in the world. And she pleads for the king that that be changed. And so he changes it and makes a law that on that day the Jews can attack anybody that's going to try to attack them. Now, so that's not super clear. There's a little bit of that you get in Veggie Tales, maybe. But what was the result? What happened because of that happening? And we see this in, in Esther. Let me see if I can find it here. Right before Job, I believe. Esther. Esther chapter 8, verse 15 to 17. Listen what happens because of this law. Okay? So this law was made. Mordecai gets royal robes. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many people... And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The NIV reads it, and many became Jews. I think it's the same thing. So this law was made, and doesn't seem so significant to us, but at the time, that was so significant. People so feared the Jews that they, God used it, that many of these nations became Jews. So we see God's heart for the nations just isn't, Something at the end of Jesus' life before he goes to heaven, go and make disciples. No, we see it actually all throughout Jesus' life, but it's all throughout the Bible. It's God's eternal purpose to bring glory to himself. Let's look at that statement again. Story how God brings glory to the Godhead by revealing his character and bringing people from every nation, tongue, and tribe into an intimate, transforming relationship with him. Now, I'm not saying the only way we glorify God is to be a missionary and bring people from another culture into worshiping God. No. It's by having a transforming relationship with Him. If we're washing the dishes and we're praying for our neighbor, praying for our children, that brings glory to God. When we step out to help somebody in the name of Jesus, because God prompts us to do it, that glorifies God. God wants, as he transforms our life, every change, when we just, when by God's strength we don't, uh, we, we feel ourselves getting irritated inside, but we don't lash out, we don't speak words of hatred or anger toward our wife or family, but allow the Spirit to calm us and respond to the Spirit, that glorifies God. Every time we allow God to transform our life, to control us, that brings glory to God. But God also, we can't, ignore the story of the Bible, is that he wants the whole planet, every place, to have people that are having their lives transformed and are worshiping him. That brings him glory. And he, he alone deserves to have the whole world filled with people in intimate relationship with him. That's, it's, it's his eternal purpose. It was from the beginning. It wasn't something that came up somewhere halfway through the Bible or toward the end of the Bible. No. This was God's heart. And it's not because he's selfish. It's because he wants to bring more and more honor to the Godhead. And he doesn't use us. Amazingly, he, he delights in the intimate relationship that he wants us to have. He wants us to walk with him. Just like Noah did. That's how you glorify God. Walk with him. Wherever God's going, you go with him. You bring God along in everything that we do. And we know 
where there's hurting people, where there's people that don't know of him, that, haven't, that don't have an intimate relationship with him, we know God is going those places, and we need to be going too. Now, I don't believe God's calling all of us to be missionaries, but he's calling all of us, obviously, to be involved in that eternal purpose of him, of his, of seeing his name glorified. It's his eternal purpose. How can we call ourselves Christian if, if we're not even, our lives aren't aligned with God's eternal purposes? We all need to be involved, whether that's praying, going, welcoming those that come from other countries, supporting those that go, supporting these ministries, being a relational supporter for those that go, mobilizing others. There's many ways we can be involved, but it's, it's got to be part of our life. Some churches, they have a mission Sunday every year, one Sunday out of 52, and so most of the people think, oh, well, missions is, you know, it's a once-a-year kind of thing. It's important, but it's only worth one Sunday a year. We do a whole month. I mean, that's great. <laughs> and I'm not advocating we do every Sunday mission, but it needs to be part of who we are. If you're discipling someone that's just come to the Lord and they don't have a heart for the nations to see God known by all the peoples, well, then you haven't taught them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Because this was part of God's heart from the very beginning. And it goes to the very end of history to see his glory magnified because there's such a diversity of people worshiping him and bringing him glory as their life is transformed. So glorify God by allowing him to change your life and make yourself available. Ask God, God, what do you want to do with my life to bring you glory? You know, often people talk about this missionary call, and I think it's important. If you're going to go overseas, you need to know that God's calling you to do that. You don't do that on a whim, because you need to look back and be able to say, no, this is, things are tough. They're going to get difficult. You've got to know that God sent me. But for some reason, people have this idea that it's only missionaries that need a call. I can be a high school teacher here in Los Angeles or a chemical engineer or computer designer. I don't have to have a call for that. I just do that. I think that's baloney. We all should have a call, a sense that this is what God wants to do with my life at this season of my life. We all need to have a burning yes, yes, and that enables us to say no to other things. We know this is how God wants to use me. God has called me to be a stay-at-home mom and to homeschool my children for this season of life for his glory. I know God has called me that. God has called me to be a high school teacher at this school, to be a light for him. Whatever it is he's called you to do professionally and with all your time, you, we all need a sense. That's what God's calling me to do. So that's why I appreciate so much Paul emphasizing these times of waiting on God because we all need a strong sense of how God wants to use us. He wants to use us all for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the privilege you give us to be your ambassadors, to be your children. Lord, help us all to align our purposes with your purposes, to be like David, to be a man or woman after your heart. Lord, may the things that are on your hearts, the things on your heart, the things that break your heart, break ours. Help our lives to be about walking with you and pleasing you. In Jesus' name.